0: Coney Island was a special place, and unbeknownst to so many, it was a lot more than the beach and the boardwalk, which to me says says something unusual. It was Mermaid Avenue and the teemingness of the commerce, if you would call it that, that was taking place there every day.
1: You're listening to Coney Island Stories. The Oral History Podcast from the Coney Island History Project.
2: I'm Charles Denson, director of the Coney Island History Project. Welcome to episode four of Coney Island Stories, our podcast produced from Oral Histories in the History Project's archive. Today we're sharing stories of Mermaid Avenue's mom-and-pop businesses founded by immigrants past and present. Located one block north of Surf Avenue and the Amusement District, Mermaid Avenue is the main shopping district of Coney Island. When I was growing up here in the 1950s and 60s, each block along Mermaid Avenue was like a separate little village. You had bakeries, fish markets, and produce stands, as well as clothing and furniture stores. Everything you needed was within a block, and most people would patronize the shops on their own block. The avenue consisted mainly of small stores with apartments above them. Most of the storefronts were in three-story brick buildings constructed in the 1920s by developer William Avidable, who sold them to store owners, many of whom lived in the back of the store and rented out the upstairs apartments. In this February 2020 oral history, Stephen Feinstein tells the story of Walensky Hardware, which is celebrating 100 years of operation on Mermaid Avenue. Wolinski's is the oldest family-owned business in Coney Island and one of the community's anchor establishments. The store survived a century of urban renewal, arson, hurricanes, crime waves, and the civic neglect that decimated hundreds of similar businesses along a once-bustling avenue that has recently recovered from years of decline. Feinstein's family opened Walensky's in 1920, and he has run the store for the last 50 years, catering to the needs of a neighborhood in transition.
3: My business is Walensky Hardware, M. Walensky Incorporated. It was in my wife's family since 1920. I took over in 1971.
2: It's amazing that this store. I remember it when I was growing up. Wonderful, you're still here. And this is the centennial, 100 years on a Mermaid Avenue. So who do you serve in the community now? It's um, a lot of NYCHA buildings here. There's a lot of new construction but you're the go-to place where somebody needs something seems like you have everything most of the customers i i see come in here are local people i
3: know many of the people since they were kids i'm waiting on people now they're third generation i dealt with their grandparents plus i grew up in the neighborhood so some of them i knew before i started working here and the other reason i'm able to stay is i own the building that's a major portion Uh, If I had to pay the rents they're paying now, which are insane, Mm. I couldn't be in business. Mm. I could actually make more money renting out the store than I make now. You have to be dedicated. You know, it's my community. I, I feel a certain obligation to the people because there really is no one else to go to anymore. You have Home Depot and there's no one to help. And you have to tell people what they need. Otherwise, they're lost. Okay, I have everything in true hardware. I I don't have much in the way housewares, never did. You know, but I have a lot of specialty hardware that you don't really find. I, my When I took over, we carried up to one-inch diameter bolts, 36 inches long, huge. They no longer have wooden rides, so there's no need for these anymore. Cyclone's the only big wooden ride my wife's grandfather started the business Uh, i believe he was an immigrant from poland but he came over when he was very young because he didn't really have an accent except for the jewish accent that everybody in coney island had Uh, coney island at the time was probably two-thirds jewish at least at least i actually found out i was talking to my wife i forgot that he actually had the store on the corner first. Then he bought this building in 1920. It was principally a paint store. Back then, they used to mix the paint. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, they had lead dust, turpentine, dryer, and colorant. That That's how they made paint. So they just make it to order. Right. In fact, none of it was made until the painter came in and said, I need 10 gallons of paint. And then my father-in-law and his brother would go in the back, and then it was their job to deliver it. Uh, Back then when a a painter ordered paint, the store delivered it, which meant that if you're in a four-story walk-up, you had to carry all this stuff up. If I remember correctly, my my father said the
2: bag of lead were 50 pounds. It It was work. Business has been here for 100 years. What do you see as a secret? How did you do this?
3: Well, two reasons, actually. Besides dumb luck and the fact that I'm in an itch industry where people come to me from out of Coney Island, uh, I'll get people from Queens and the Bronx occasionally because there aren't many people uh, left who sell the things I sell and have them on hand. A lot of stuff now is ordered. I like to acknowledge when the kids come in, they appreciate it. I still have adults coming to me now talking about, oh, how they used to come to the store when they were children, and they still remember it. It's hard, you know, I guess it's hard on any business, you know, as times change, you have to adapt. We always had a lot of characters.
2: And you become one. This past spring, I recorded an oral history with Charles Gariglia, who shared his story of working with his father, Frank, on a bread route in Coney Island. His father delivered Stumer's kosher bread to the Jewish delicatessens and shops along Mermaid Avenue for more than 25 years. From age nine until he went to college, Gariglia accompanied his dad on the bread route in the summer and got to know the hardworking immigrant store owners. He recalls making 60 stops in the Coney Island area, but by the time Stoomers closed in 1973, his dad only had 27 stops. Goriglia vividly remembers the names of the stores on the route, including their first stop, Bortnick's, on 29th Street just off Mermaid, where they would arrive at 5.30 in the morning.
0: So I spent roughly 10 or 11 summers working with him on the bread route. And became very familiar, not with Coney Island and all of its folklore, but with all of the mom and pop grocery stores that were there in those days. My dad would knock on the door. Mr. Bortnick would come from the back where he lived through the store and let my father in. And we would make the first delivery of the day. And we're talking about 1951 to 1960 here, but there were many, many other stores and storekeepers along the route, particularly on Mermaid Avenue, they were all Jewish. Many of them were refugees from the camps, and they had the numbers on their forearms, and and that made a big impact on me. And my father was very um, clear about that. He said, Charlie, which is what he used to call me, Charlie, these people had it very, very tough. And they were just eking out a living. And I can remember some of the the names of the stores that were on the route. One was Bortnik, which I just mentioned. Another one was Adelman, A-D-E-L-M-A-N. Franco, which was not on Mermaid. That was, I think, on Surf or even further out. Um, There were the Kaplan Brothers. There was Lakewood Dairy, which is the picture you sent me yesterday. I learned that these people who own these stores were living in the back so that their kids wouldn't have to. We those storekeepers worked very hard, but as time went on, a pathmark came in. I think Cropsey Avenue is where they were, mm-hmm. and they started taking the business away from all of those little mom and pops. And uh, so that trade, that, that kosher trade, the Jewish folks left uh, left Coney Island, and with it, I think a lot of my father's sales. But but a lot of bread companies served
2: the city and Coney Island in those days. This was um, Stumer's Bakery, right? And, and were these yes, were it kosher? Was. It was kosher bread.
0: Kosher, kosher parava, which is a high form of kosher. They had a rabbi on, not on duty, but on the payroll to make sure that everything was strictly sanitary and kept to. The kosher code. Now we were Catholic and I, I learned this stuff in a little Yiddish on the side, um, <laughs> just by being on the route. In fact, like most people think, are you Jewish? You know so much. Well, I know so much because I lived it and, and it was hard work. I wasn't pleased to do it because I was a little kid. You know, we were up early in the morning, but as I look back, it was probably the, the one experience which helped form me uh, as an adult: hard work, honesty, and tell the truth at all times, and and that was dad, and and those people on who own those stores in Coney Island.
2: <laughs> so you must have really loved Coney Island and gotten to know it, I guess.
0: Coney Island was a special place, and unbeknownst to so many, it was a lot more than the beach and the boardwalk, which to me. It says says something unusual. It was Mermaid Avenue and the teemingness of the commerce, if you would call it that, that was taking place there every day.
2: During the 1970s, the Avenue, as residents called it, underwent a radical transformation as the neighborhood and the clientele of the businesses changed. As urban renewal resulted in the demolition of 30 square blocks of housing surrounding Mermaid Avenue, longtime customers disappeared. Rather than renovate or preserve the old buildings, the city began bulldozing them, starting at the western end of the avenue. After New York City went broke in the 1970s, the demolition ended, but not before most of the business district was gone. High-rise housing projects sprang up on empty lots surrounding the decimated shopping district. The not-for-profit Estella Development Corporation, formed in 1975, went on to restore much of the neighborhood by building low-rise affordable housing on vacant city land, essentially replacing what the city had destroyed. The neighborhood soon stabilized, new businesses opened, and a revitalized Mermaid Avenue began its slow recovery. Founded in 2006, Ho-Chung Lee's J&R Pharmacy is on Mermaid Avenue at the corner of West 23rd Street. He and his family live above the pharmacy. In this 2015 oral history recorded by Samira Tazari, Lee talks about emigrating from Hong Kong when he was in his 20s and spending more than four years studying to regain his pharmacist's license. Serving the customer is the main point of being a pharmacist, says Lee, who enjoys interacting with people in the community after working what he describes as boring jobs at chain stores and hospital pharmacies. Since his pharmacy is the only store within a two-mile radius that sells the Chinese newspaper, it draws new Chinese immigrants, including seniors who speak no English. They look to him for news and advice about melting into the
4: melting pot
2: that is America.
4: Yes, I like this community a lot. Yes, and Kongle Island is like I looking for a place to live, live in. So I, by chances, I found this building. Uh, so uh, right next to the a police police precinct. I I think it's it should be safe to live around here. It's seaside, and the price during that time is compared outside is a lot cheaper. So I, I just purchase this building and also I see a lot of Chinese live around here, there's no Chinese pharmacy. Why there's no Chinese pharmacy? You know, I opened up here. Now I enjoy it very much. I live upstairs, my sons go to school around here, and I don't have to worry about this transportation. Most of family, the family, the young went to work, the old fellows stayed at home taking care of the grandkids, those working people, they they don't come to me. Only the young and the old. <laughs> those are grand grandpa, grandma, bringing the grandkids coming here. You know, because my store hours nine to six, eighteen to forty-five or fifty. I won't see them. I only interact with those old fellows and kids most of the time. In the first year, it's most difficult years in uh, in my business. Uh, after that. Beginning enjoying working here because they come in for newspaper a lot, those Chinese people. And then they think I have all the news around American and the world. So it's beginning like a hangout area. So I give them information sometimes. They to give me some information about their families and uh, what happened in China. They have newspaper, Chinese news and Hong Kong news. But I, I think I don't need that because I'm living in America. Whatever happened there is minor. The major thing is what happened here? You know, we have election here. We have lots of activity in Coney Island. They, they look at the Chinese news. They're watching Chinese TV. No, no, no. Try to look at American Channel. You have to do certain things, you No. Know become a good citizen. Go to vote is one of them. Election, please do that. I I urge them to do it. That. That's the only way for our new immigrant to contribute to this country. I try to step into the society, try to to melt in, they call it melting pot in American, to melt in to American, but I still find some struggling between my culture and the American culture. Like my family, I, I speak Cantonese all the time in my family. I speak English, do my job. That's my professional English is enough. No, One pill, three times a day, take it after meal. The shrine in the front of the pharmacy? You mean the Juan Yeah. Tell us about that. Oh, that... A lot of Chinese stores, they have that journal Lu in in the facing the uh, the entrance Is It's like a superstitious thing. It's like they, they will protect us, protect our business, because it's a, a hero in the child before. I believe he's, he's more than 2,000 years old now. That's how the business being protected. In Sansa. every day I put one in there, there's that's a worshiping him. That's the traditional Chinese way.
2: At the western end of Mermaid Avenue, just outside Seagate, is Mermaid Spa, an authentic Russian bathhouse known as Zabanya. In this 2015 oral history recorded in Russian by Mark Markov, Boris Kotlier, one of the spa's owners, describes the cultural traditions of Abanya and how he and his Ukrainian-American friends came to build one in southern Brooklyn in the 1990s. An engineer by training, Kotlier first immigrated to Pennsylvania in 1978, where he managed heating, cooling, and ventilation systems before moving to New York and starting his own business in that field. In the full oral history, he recounts the many changes that he has seen in Coney Island, Brighton Beach, and his native Kiev over the past three decades.
5: Here in New York, specifically in our Russian community, that is, in Brighton, there was no Russian bathhouse. Here, the first banya was opened on Neck Road. It still exists. It was actually the first one, a very small one, well, a very small semblance of a Russian banya. I would sometimes help them, because I still had a cooling business back then. They asked for advice, and sometimes we made repairs for them in the refrigerators in the little restaurant or cafe they had.
1: And so, we saw this little bathhouse. Later,
5: when we started working with our Ukrainian partners on Ukrainian-American manufacturing, we had another idea, to make something here that was, well, bigger. To make something similar to the banyas we had in Ukraine, I started looking for a place. We found a place in Seagate. At the time, the building, which was empty, was not in use and just stood there. There is a word for it in English abandoned. We, of course, wanted to make something as close as possible to that which we remembered, but also to utilize the benefits of modern technology and combine the two. We had no experience. For us it was something very new. Nobody used to own a banya, nobody knew how to make one. So we started to do research and to read literature. How? What? How do you make this? But how to build an actual stove for the stones was a challenge for us. There were unsuccessful attempts. It was a process in which we made mistakes at first, where we learned to understand thermodynamics, and we learned how modern heating systems could work with old-fashioned stoves. (laughs) In this way, we managed to combine it all, and we learned. There is also a specific element of the Russian banya. In Russian it is called parka, and here they call it plaza. I do not know why, it is not an English word, most likely it comes from Yiddish. What is it? In those ancient times, before washcloths, (laughs) people needed to wash, so they invented a way to do it. The wise men invented this way. They took small twigs on which leaves had just begun to sprout oak, pine, eucalyptus, wove other leaves into them from other plants that had medicinal qualities, and made it into something like a broom or brush. More like a
1: broom.
5: They used this venique mostly to wash themselves. If one lets the leaves soak in moisture and does so correctly, then the leaves reach an almost mint condition. And during massage with this venik, all the beneficial microelements that are in the leaves are released through physical contact and find their way into the skin. As these are microelements that are small enough to get into the pores, and from the pores get into the bloodstream, in this manner, they have a medicinal effect on the human body. It is very difficult for me to appraise what our place is in the Russian-speaking community. The one thing that I can tell you is that people come here, the number of people, because we are a seasonal business and the season is just starting right now. Most people come in the winter and fewer people come in the summer half the people that come in winter. On average it's from 1,000 to 1,500 a week. In a month we can serve 5 or 6,000 people.
1: What is our place in the community? (laughs) I don't know.
5: I know that people know about us, I know that people talk about us, you are here, after all.
2: Thank you for listening to Coney Island Stories, the Coney Island History Project podcast. This episode was produced by Charles Denson, Ali Lemer, and Tricia Vida, music by Blue Dot Sessions, Russian translations by Julia Kanan and Mark Markov, and voiceovers by River Kanoff and Ali Lemer. You can listen to the full interviews featured in this podcast in our oral history archive at. History.org. If you have a question or would like to record an oral history, contact us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our website. Stay tuned for the next episode of Coney Island Stories, the oral history podcast from the Coney Island History Project.
4: This program is part of the Cultural Immigrant Initiative, supported in part by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and New York City Councilman Mark Traeger.